tastes change. That's normal. People say money changes people. Money should change people. What is up, you sexy beasts? It's your boy, King Taco, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I got my buddy Ramit Sethi of IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. I've known Ramit for over 15 years. Uh, we met when he was at Stanford and I was dying away at Intel. Ramit put out a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich over 10 years ago and he's got a new version out so he's making the rounds and he's one of my good buddies so I wanted to promote him and share his awesomeness about personal finance on the episode today. Most of you, including myself, we spent a ton of time researching microwaves, where to eat or travel plans, but we definitely do not spend as much time or most of us don't spend time understanding good money habits. So his book is one of my favorites for people starting out or wanting to improve their finances and I wanted to talk to him more about the book and just other things regarding money because it is a very interesting topic. So if you want to learn more about how to improve your finances and like hearing about moolah, this is an episode for you. Enjoy. Before we jump into the conversation, go check out sendfox.com. That's sendfox.com. It's what I personally use to email you about cool stuff. And if you are a content creator and want to affordably email your audience, go check out sendfox.com. Super shout out to listener Jordan Carroll for leaving a review. Thank you, man. He said the show is fuego. Go leave an iTunes review yourself with your URL and I will shoot you out on a future episode. I was thinking about how we've known each other. 15 years. Yeah, 15 years. And I was thinking to myself, like, 15 years later, you're still talking about credit cards. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, is this where you thought you'd be 15 years later? Dude. It's like, where'd you think it would all go? I didn't think that far ahead. I just thought to the next blog post I was going to write. Like 2004 is when we met. You know, I just started my blog, I think. August 04 is when I started it. And I started it because nobody would come to my classes in college. And like nobody wants to talk about money when they're drinking beer. They don't care and they're not making money. So I was like very obstinate though. I was like, the world needs to hear what I have to say. I started this blog and dude, I didn't even make any money from it. I didn't think that it would turn into a business. It was just a hobby. I never have been the one to plan like 20 years down the road. I'm just like, let me try to do something cool. How long did it actually take to start actually first making money? How many years was that? I didn't make money until December 2006. And that was only because I decided to try selling a $4.95. I remember that ebook. Didn't Scott Herf design it? Yeah. And it was uh, called The 2007 Guide to Kicking Ass. And I literally didn't think anyone would buy it. So I had no fulfillment system set up. I was just going to email people who PayPal'd me. Yeah. Because I thought like 50 people would buy it, maybe. And 50 people bought it in an hour. And I was like, what the hell is happening right now? But also people in the comments were like, you suck, you, you sell out. out. <laughs> yeah, and I will teach Ramit to be rich. That was a very big reckoning for me. Like I felt absolutely horrible. In my mind, I'd been writing this for free for over two years. And I'd never asked for a single thing, never asked for a cent, never put anything. And like all these people were coming out of the woodwork. But then like I looked at the metrics, every single person who bought had like an 85% open rate in my emails. And they were the ones who were sending positive feedback. It just became very clear to me at that moment that there is a difference on the internet between people who pay and people who don't. And that would take me through the next 10 years of my life trying to understand that and understand that there are differences in people. And in general, you can't turn a D student into an A student. And I don't just mean in school. Okay. The people who are gonna invest in themselves are gonna invest in themselves. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be with a $5 ebook. We've now had programs that are $20,000 plus. The amount is sort of irrelevant. Yeah. But 
when people come and they're super skeptical, the reason I started the blog was I didn't want to have to convince people. I'm going to write what I'm going to write. I know my material works because I test it with hundreds of thousands of people. Like if you are ready, awesome. Like we can do this. I can show you stuff. So can a lot of other people. If you're not and you're looking for reasons not to join, then you're going to find them. Trust me. People investing themselves is hard. What I'm curious about is, so you, when did it finally dawn that you have a business? You were still working full time at another company. Yeah, it didn't dawn until I went on book tour in 2009 for the I Will Teach You To Be Rich book, which everyone should go get. Thank you. First edition came out March 2009. You want to know something funny? You know what was significant about March 2009? I'm trying to think if I got dumped. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That was the absolute bottom of the recession. So if you had bought my book March 26, 2009, and you simply followed the steps in the six-week program, this book costs like 10 bucks, you are financially set for life. No way. Yes. I don't believe it. March 2009. Okay, well, give me, can you give me the highlights of the six steps? Yeah. Well, dude. I have read your book. In the page one of the book says, if you had bought this book 10 years ago and used it, here's what your results would have been. This has turned into a book reading. All right, here we go. <laughs> Do the pictures. If you'd bought this book 10 years ago and followed the exact advice in it, here's what you would have accomplished by now. If you'd invested just $100 a month, that $12,000 would have turned into over $20,000. If you'd aggressively invested, that 120 k would have turned into more than $200,000. You'd be spending less than 90 minutes per month on your money. You would have been able to take multiple vacations and fly business class completely free using credit card points, and money would have gone from a source of anxiety and confusion to one of calm and possibility. That's just with a hundred bucks a month. So what do you think most people do? That either buy a book and don't do shit or that don't even like bother paying attention? Most people wait until they're 40 and then they have kids and they wake up and they say, uh-oh, I better start doing something. And this is very predictable. Vanguard, Fidelity, everyone knows this. That's why those firms focus on older people because they have money and because they actually have a desire. That's the mass market is 40s and 50s. And you can do things, especially in your 40s. There's definitely opportunities. By the time you get to your 50s and 60s, it becomes extremely tough. I had a woman who wrote me, she was like 62 years old, and she said, I need to make $80,000 by the end of the year. And I just told her straight, I said, look, that's not going to happen. However, let's talk about what can happen. <laughs> what happens for most people with money is, number one, they put it off just like eating right. It's like something that, look, if you don't open up the right account and you don't invest, it's not like you're going to die. You're going to be fine. You made it this far. Not investing isn't going to really materially affect you today. What they do is they say to themselves things like, I don't want to gamble and lose money in the stock market. What they don't realize, they are invisibly losing money every single day. It's just like a tiny hole in their bucket, their financial bucket. Water's just seeping out one drip at a time. And by the time it gets to a certain point, you can never get enough to fill it up again. But I have a good friend and I want to call him out on the show, uh, Mark. And no, no, it's not his name. <laughs> his income fluctuates. He has student debt. He has credit card debt. And he doesn't even know where to begin. And he actually is scared of it. And he just kind of avoids it. He doesn't probably know how much he even owes. No, I asked him that yesterday, actually. And he's like, I don't really know. And so I think the things I was wondering from your perspective is one, do you feel too disconnected from that person? Because like, I haven't had to worry about money since I was born because I started working out of the womb. <laughs> like I came out of the womb. My parents were like, get a job, Noah, you get a job. But I've always had that in me. And then I was trained very early on. And then so I guess I was just trying to think with him what I did yesterday. I was like, yo, here's my accountant. He was like, should I take a job and get out of debt? I was like, hell yes. 
So I was like, get an account and get out of debt. But I guess one, do you feel too disconnected from that? And then what kind of advice or recommendations would you have someone who is kind of just avoiding almost? I don't feel disconnected, but I'll give you an example. I was doing a segment for Money Magazine. I don't know why, but every media company wants me to have me come like parachute into someone's house where the couple's having financial difficulties <laughs> and like go over their budget. I'm like, I'd rather be dead. This is like the worst. It sounds so boring. And I'm not the guy who tells people, stop spending money on lattes. I hate that. I hate going in and being restrictive about what you can't do. I'd rather talk about how did you get here? Like, tell me about your parents. Tell me about growing up. Tell me about what you love. What's your rich life? Let's start there. And then most people, when you ask them that question, they're like, I want to pay off my debt. I'm like, that's your fucking rich life. Can we dream bigger? And then suddenly they have a dream. Everyone has a dream. Like this woman who I was working with, she said, I want to go on a honeymoon. We never went on a honeymoon. My birthday, I'm turning 30 soon. I want to do something for my birthday. And I was like, yes. I was like, tell me about that honeymoon. She's like, well, it's not like I want to go somewhere for that long. I was like, yes, you do. Tell me how long, forget money. Just tell me the dream, right? It's so funny how so many of us define ourselves by what we don't want to do. I don't want this. I don't want that. It's not like I need to live in Manhattan. It's like, why don't you just tell me where you want to live? That's interesting. Okay, so so we pushed it, right? I push them to really dream big. And it doesn't mean that you have to do everything. Like I had dreams when I started out that I've realized like, I just don't give a shit about anymore. Did you have a stupid dream I had that I finally accomplished this year? What? I got an ice machine on the outside of my fridge. Wow. Dude. You are living the big time now. I know. How does that and, feel? And a, oh, I come home every day. <laughs> It's that thing, That's dude. really funny. And a water dispenser. Dude, we got a baller in this place right now. Okay, so I went to her apartment in New Jersey and I walk into this apartment and I thought to myself, wow, you really can tell a lot about someone by walking into their apartment. And I hadn't had that experience. The people whose apartments I go to visit are usually my friends. This was a new woman. I was meeting her for the first time and I see so much stuff. And I asked her, tell me about this place. And she told me, I love candles. She has a huge collection of candles. She has a massive TV. I have no TV. She had like a 65 inch TV. Interesting to look at her car. That tells you a lot about someone. What do they choose to buy? She had two dogs. When I spoke to her and she told me how she feels being in debt, like she said, she feels stifled. And I didn't know if I would enjoy this, but I felt like I really got to understand her after spending three or four hours with her. So I think it's easy for people as they start to make more money to become disconnected. I try to fight to stay connected, whether it's through this media thing or like I read every email that people send me and I respond to as many as I can. Like people tell me the craziest stories on earth. They tell me the craziest stories because I'm not gonna judge them. Buddy of mine tells me he makes 1.2 million a year, right? That's it? <laughs> and he, he's like not in a good financial situation. And I was what? like, no way. Yeah. See that response? That's judgment. And I was like, yeah, I'm I was like, dude, I've seen it all. I totally get it. How you can make that income and then start spending X, Y, Z. I totally get it. It's so rational. But, you know, he asked me for advice. I said, look, you should have more in savings. You need to do a couple things and you need to not do that thing you were about to do. And if you just fix that with your high income, you can be fixed up in like three years. Similarly, if people are like, oh, I know this is really bad, but I have like $18,000 of credit card debt. I'm like, dude, I've seen it all. We can fix it. Let's make a plan. A few things that you're known for, and I'll just call them out. One, rich life, which I think you've said now for 10 plus years, which I love. It's like, it's not just about how much money. It's like, are you living the life you want? I like what you said with butts. Like people are like, oh, I can't do it, but it's the same thing. I think people say like, oh, I don't mean to complain. So I'm like, why can't you say the happy stuff? 
one other thing that it's one of your signature stuff is the automatic stuff, which is like set up shit so you don't have to spend your energy thinking about it. Like I have a lot of friends who are like, yeah, I read Ramit's book years ago and now 20% of their money goes into a special savings account. I have a friend, he has bank accounts that he has for different items. I think that's from you. Mm -hmm. So he has like, he had one for his couch. Yep. And I'm like, dude, you make 300,000 a year. And he's like, yeah, dude, I can afford the couch now. It's a $2,000 couch, but he's been saving every month. Uh, based on, you know, wanting to earn it and feeling good about accomplishing it. So coming back to that lady and your friend, what was like the specific tactics or strategies you recommended for both those people? Most people in debt, over 95%, don't even know how much they owe. Two, most people have never spent one weekend learning about money. They spend time researching what place they're going to go to eat for longer than they spend learning about money. Not even one hour on a Saturday and Sunday learning about money. But instead... They feel exhausted because where have they learned about money from? From all the wrong places. They heard some Wall Street guy telling them, you need an annuity. No, you don't. Annuity's bullshit. They heard it from their mom. You better buy real estate because real estate is the best investment there is. That's not true for most people as well, or for some. We can run the numbers. And then they hear all these other things. And so they haven't actually done anything with their money, but they feel exhausted. It's like someone who goes on a fitness subreddit and they read paleo, whole 30, this, that, heavy lifts. And they're like, ah, you haven't even gotten out of your chair and you feel exhausted. So what I do is I say, first of all, tell me about yourself. Tell me what your dreams are. Tell me what your money is. No judgment. I've seen it all. And then I'm like, all right, are you ready to make a change? Most are not. That's okay. If they are, it's like, read this book. I like to give people a small barrier. I think fitness and finance have so much in common. And I asked my trainer, do your friends ever try to get free training from you? And he's like, oh yeah, all the time. I was like, what do you say? And he goes, I tell them, if they do 100 push-ups a day for a month, they can do one at a time, they can do 10 at a time, it doesn't matter. But if they can do it for one month, I'll train them for free. And I said, how many people have ever taken you up? He's like, zero. <laughs> so giving people a small barrier really sees if they're serious or not. And as simple as read the book, from there, they know exactly what to do. So those two people, did you remember what the recommendations you gave for them? Yeah. So for the woman was, first of all, she has a husband. So that's another dynamic in there, right? And I asked, what's your husband's situation? And they had earning power. They were making around $50,000, $55,000 a year. They had debt. They had this. They had that. So I gave him the book. I said, read that. The next step was make a list of how much you owe. Just find out. That's all you have to do is just like put it on paper because she wasn't even sure how much she owed. The next step was... I asked her, tell me about this stuff in this apartment. She's like, I love buying this. I love buying that. And you could see she was shrinking as she said it. She was afraid I was going to like go off on her. I said, um, do me a favor. You have a phone? She's like, yeah. I was like, pull it out. And I asked her to open up her email. I'm like, read me the emails you have in your inbox. What do you think she says? Nordstrom. Nordstrom, Kohl's, Target, Sephora, Bed Bath & Beyond. I was like, do you need these multi-billion dollar companies to remind you that they exist or where the target is? She's like, no. I'm like, which of these do you buy from? She's like, all of them. I have Bed Bath & Beyond stuff over there, Sephora stuff over there. I'm like, is this the stuff you want to spend your money on? She's like, no. I was like, unsubscribe from all of them. And she's like, okay, I will. I was like, do it right now. Let's do it. She's like, the cameras are rolling. I'm like, I know. They'll wait. And we went through it. She did like 10, 15 of them. I met her again. We went to meet a financial advisor together. And she told me that once she unsubscribed, it completely changed. She said she gets like five emails a day now. Yeah. And then for your millionaire friend. So I told him this, people who spend a lot of money tend to make the same classic mistakes. And it's very interesting because when you're making like 50K, you're like, that's outrageous. How could you ever do that? But when you make a million, it's actually really easy. They lease really expensive cars, big ones. They love buying an apartment 
or house and then doing home renovations. They love it. And they love taking home equity lines of credit. Oh, and they send kids to private school. So I'm not saying any of these is a mistake, but when you add it all up, if you live in Manhattan, you actually need to be making a tremendous amount of money to do that. Because you have to remember, New York, you're taking basically 50% in tax, city tax, state tax, federal, everything. If you want to build up enough savings, even at that income, you need to be careful of doing things like home renovations. A lot of times, as anyone who's in real estate knows, there's a couple things when you renovate that might give you ROI, and most of them are just, you're doing it because you want to do it. Fine if you want to do it, but just be honest about it. You're not going to get an ROI on doing your landscaping in the back, okay? So I told him, don't do the home equity line. Hold off on the renovation. Can't do anything about the lease. You already got the lease. And what I also told him was, here's a benchmark of where you should be. I have some simple rules of thumb in life. One of them is have like a year worth of cash, just liquid. And you can build up to that. Other people call it a three-month emergency fund. I like to be conservative. And so when I told him that, his eyes got wide open. He's like, oh, shit. Most people don't know a benchmark of where they should be. I said, it's up to you if you want to do it or not. I'm not going to force you. Yeah. But that's what I would do. You live in New York. You just said that you give away 50% of your money. And a lot of people at the rage now is to live in Puerto Rico. Or I did a conservation easement, which is where you invest in historic buildings. And then you actually own the building as part of the fund. And then you get a write-off against your taxes. Yeah. Because it's an easement on the building. But I feel like you haven't really gone out of your way to explicitly reduce your taxes. No, I'm happy to pay my taxes. I optimize within the constraints of the law. I told my accountant, I'm like, on a scale of one to 10, one is like, I take literally no tax deductions or contribute at all to any tax advantage accounts. To 10 is like criminal. (laughs) I'm like a three. (laughs) They're even like, why don't you use your business card for this? I'm like, well, you know, it's my friend too. We didn't just talk about business. I don't even want to be near the line. Dude, I make enough money that I don't want to have to go through producing paperwork from the last five years. Now, if it happens, we have the paperwork. I just don't want the hassle. One of my money dials, the thing that I like in my life spending money on is convenience. That seems to me about the most inconvenient thing is to get audited or to have to think every day, oh, what tax scheme am I doing? And I have to say, all the entrepreneurs I know who start talking and within the first five minutes, they talk about all the ways they're trying to save taxes. They're never successful entrepreneurs. The best entrepreneurs I know talk about their customers They talk about their employees. They talk about their values or like what gives them joy. I'm more than happy to pay my taxes because I live in a country where I can run a business the size that I do. No one's coming to kick down my door. No one's coming to hold a gun to my head and say, pay me if you want power. And again, I'm very smart about how I take advantage of 401ks, IRAs, HSAs, all kinds of accounts that I use. But like, I don't earn the kind of money that I earn and work the kind of work that I do so that I have to go somewhere else and live somewhere else because of taxes. I work and do what I do so I can live wherever I want. If that happened to be Puerto Rico, which is beautiful, awesome, but I don't make decisions because of taxes. Taxes are the tail. Where exactly is your net worth? Of my net worth, probably 60% is in cash. (laughs) Uh, I just like seeing it. You know what I should do? I should do a simulation for you showing how much you're losing every day. You know, I think that's kind of what you're saying in terms of you give up the tax money to live here because of the benefits. I think I'm okay with the 1% or 2% inflation stuff that reduces the power of the money just to not have any variability in the risk of it. Okay, fair enough. The bulk of it is invested in the market, in low-cost index funds or target date funds. Are we talking like 50% of your net worth? More than that. Is an index fund? Yeah. Well over that. That's what I talk about in my book. I do exactly what I say. (laughs) That's a lot. It's not that risky over the long term. Let's just say it's 75%. So within that, the money is in different accounts. 
Some of it's in a 401k, some of it's in an IRA, some of it's in an HSA, but it's all invested in funds. Now, I have a few individual stocks I've picked over time. Do you want to share which one? Yeah. So when I was in high school, the first three stocks I ever picked, I thought investing was about picking stocks. It's not. But I thought that's what it was. And it was like 1999. So everyone was like, oh, man, I lost money. Yeah, me too. So I invested in a company called JDSU, Uniphase, now bankrupt. I invested in a company called Excite at Home. I bought that one too. Now bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. lost all of it. I invested in a little company called Amazon.com. Now, that money which was like $5,000 or something like that that I earned from working in high school is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. The lesson though for everyone is not go buy the next Amazon. That was a pure fluke. That was like total luck. The lesson is don't try to pick stocks because you will almost certainly lose compared to what you will make in the market. So I have some individual stocks here and there that I've bought over time, but Basically, I always have rules of thumb. So like 5 to 10% of my investable portfolio can be in angel, which I've done, or individual stocks. But the most part of it is just like... Okay, so 75% is in index funds throughout these things. 5% is stocks, risky things. Where's the 20%? It's mostly cash. So cash would be, I have savings accounts. Like money market accounts? No, it's literally a savings account. Why don't you move into money market? Why do I care? Because it's just as liquid and you can get a 2% return. I get 2% right now. In fact, I have an automatic thing that rotates it to get higher interest rates. CDARs? I think you told me about that. CDARs is for people, if you have too much for one FDIC insured account, like over 250, then you can use CDARs, which will move it around. But there's another thing I use called Max My Interest, which will connect all these accounts and it'll just rotate it from one place to another to max it out. If you have 250 or 500,000, you're not making that much from an extra 0.25%. But if you want to and it's cool, then you can. So it's in cash and I have like midterm goals. For example, if I'm going on vacation each year, I want to be saving for that. When I was saving for an engagement ring or a wedding, I put it there. And also just like in general, I have some emergency fund, like I said, about a year's worth of cash. I have a little bit more than that. So you said having a lot of cash is bad. It's like a weight. You put it on your ankle when you're swimming. Like it's going to slow you down. Now, what's it going to slow you down from? You could have theoretically taken that money and put it in the market and made roughly 8% over the long term. Now, is it better just to dump all that money at once or should I like pace it out? Now, that's a great question. The research shows counterintuitively, if you have a lump sum, it's better to actually dump it in at once. Why? Because two thirds of the time the market will go up. So statistically, you have better odds of just dumping it in once instead of slowly dollar cost averaging it over. However, most people don't actually have a lump sum. Most people invest in the way that they get paid from their paycheck and they take a certain amount and put it in. So if you happen to have like 20 grand or whatever the number may be, statistically, you're better off dumping it all in the market at once. But look, if you want to be a little more conservative, you could take 20K and break it out over 10 months and put 2K in per month. And is your argument that historically over the past 100 years, the market has gone up? And yeah. so because of inflation and so forth, you're losing money, having yes. cash just sitting? Yes. And then to that point, you said that robo stuff is dumb, like Betterment or Wealthfront. You don't like them as opposed to Vanguard? By the time you're asking the question, should I invest through Vanguard or a robo advisor like Betterment or Wealthfront? All these are good options. Personally, I don't use them and I use Vanguard. I think they're the best. I trust them the most and their business model is sustainable. Betterment and Wealthfront and other robo-advisors have done some amazing things. They have beautiful interfaces. They make it super easy to invest. They're also really good at setting goals for young people who are like, oh, I wanna buy a house one day. They'll help you automatically do that, which is amazing. However, 
They do charge a slight fee and their business model doesn't allow them to continue the way they're doing. They raised tons of money in venture capital and they have to either grow their asset base like massively, like Vanguard has over nine times the asset under management, AUM. So they need to either grow massively, which is gonna be extremely difficult for them, or they need to make more money per user which is exactly what they're gonna do. And in fact, there's been some articles in the Wall Street Journal where some robo-advisors have actually taken people and put them into an account that they shouldn't have been put into. So you're starting to see them doing things that are indicative of what the old sort of big full-service brokerages used to do, and I don't like it. When it comes to my money, I wanna pick companies that I trust, and I've picked the same companies. I tend to stay with them for 10 or 20 years minimum. So Vanguard, they actually lower their fees proactively. That's the kind of company I want to work with. And is there, what's the first fund? Like my buddy who's, if he gets out of debt, Mm -hmm. what's the first thing you should put his money in? So he should go and pick a simple target date fund. All he needs to do, let's say he's 30 years old. He can assume that he's going to retire at 65. So that's 35 years from now. So whatever this year is plus 35, let's just say it's 2020 for easy math. So 2055, there's a Vanguard fund called Vanguard 2055. He can go pick that. It will be kind of aggressive because he's young. And as time goes on, it will automatically become a little more conservative for him. It's just like the pie chart changes. And all he needs to do is put as much money as he can into it every single month, automated. If he does that, he will do very well. And when people talk about like, can I be a millionaire and stuff? It's not that hard. It's challenging to have the discipline and knowledge to do it, but it's actually very simple. You just put money into a long-term fund, low cost, and you just focus on doing that every single month. In the beginning of the show, you said someone went from 12,000 to 20,000 in 10 years of savings. I was like, eh, doesn't sound that great. Yeah, but that's nothing. That's $1,000 a month. If you're making 50,000 when you started, you're making a lot more 10 years later, okay, at your job. So if you're following my advice, especially about negotiating a raise, minimum of three times a week, I get people coming up to me. They're like, you help me negotiate a seven, 17 or $25,000 raise. I really don't want people in my company to hear this. I know. The CEOs always hate it. <laughs> There's like an anti-remit salary like <laughs> course. Well, Bank of America really hates me. I'm on their negative influencer list. Are you really? Yeah. My friend works there and she's like, dude, do you know you're on an influencer list? And I was like, me? Little old me? And then she's like, yeah, but it's a negative influencer list. Because they suck. They suck. The Bank of America and Wells Fargo are predatory, particularly Wells Fargo. And I call them out in my book. So I don't pull any punches, right? I tell you the best companies and I also tell you the worst companies. And I don't need to do a deal with any of these banks. I don't need their money. So I tell you exactly who I use and who I would never use. Again, I think people should proactively take control of their financial lives to start. I have this phrase, my money is good money. And what I mean by that is if I hire somebody to work for me, I expect a certain level of service, and I'm not gonna apologize for it. You sort of expect like, if you hire an employee, they're gonna come in on time and they're gonna deliver X, Y, Z. These are not like big expectations. If I hire someone, I just wanna be clear, like this is what I expect. And if you don't wanna do it, that's totally fine, but I will find somebody else who will because my money is good money. And there's a lot of people who wanna work and do good work. Same with my financial companies. My money's good money, especially as you start to earn more. It's like, no, I have zero tolerance for scammy companies or people who are just bad customer service. So that's why I'm like, if you want to work with Bank of America, okay, but why would you? For people that are listening that have a somewhat of a fixed mindset and a fixed income, you know, a lot of your advice as I was reflecting on it is don't worry about your latte. Don't worry about getting the guac. Tying in, that's for you. What's the kind of things that you're observing or helping people grow the top end instead of worrying about the cutting the bottom end? Well, there's a limit to how much you can cut, but there's no limit to how much you can earn. And that is true, by the way, for employees or entrepreneurs. 
the key there is managing your expenses, right? So if you're making, let's just say $100,000 and you're spending almost all of it, it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur or employee. You need to be managing your expenses. Do you think you would have made more money as an employee or as being able to run your own business? Your upside is going to be higher as an entrepreneur. However, your risk is going to be higher. That's why I always like to do side business, start, prove it out, get some clients. And then eventually, if you decide to go full-time, you can. So I was working full-time in San Francisco, and eventually my business started making more than I was making full-time. And I was being paid well. Investments also have grown too. Now, if I were working full-time over the last 10 years, I would have still done really well because I invested in a disciplined way every single month. My income would have grown and that money would have been compounding. But I think, you know, as a business owner, if you are successful, there are lots of ways where you can actually get like years worth of income potentially in like one year. Do you think with company money, you should invest in an index fund or leave that in cash? Like my business cash? Yeah. No, I don't invest that. If I'm going to invest it, I'm going to invest it in employees, right? I'm going to pay to retain the great ones I have, or I'm going to hire more. But there's no reason, in my opinion, to put it in the stock market. That's like the exact wrong thing to do. Because the variation can be too high in the short term. Exactly. So, and same for my personal investments, like the money that I put in the stock market, I don't need it. At least I don't need it for the next 10 years. So that I can therefore accept that it might go down. That's fine. Yeah. I was thinking about this recently. I use Betterment and I use Vanguard and I have like a monthly deposit and just goes into the accounts and so forth. But it's my percentage of my net worth, it's still relatively small in index funds. How much? Of my net worth, probably somewhere around 15%. See, like now my eyes are like, I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Okay. And the rest is cash. Some real estate cash and then some risky. Here's what I was thinking though. It's like when we get 65, so we're in our mid thirties now, we're going to be 65 eventually. And then I was like, what the hell do I do with the index funds then? Do I just sell them and then get the cash? Like what happens then? Yeah, what actually happens when you get to that point? So the short answer is, yes, you can sell them or you can take the dividends that are being generated and pay them out to you. There's lots of ways to cash it out. And at that point, you can do it in like a tax efficient way. Here's something my uncle told me a few months ago when I was in India. My uncle said something I've never heard anyone say. He said, you have a window to spend your money. He's like, really your window to spend your money in your life is about... 40 to 75. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, we know someone who's elderly. He said, look at him. Like he has no use. You could give him a million dollars. He would have no use for it. Like he's just happy being around family. That's what he likes to do. He said, when you're 40, 50, you're active, you're healthy, you can use it. And I thought to myself, like, I've never heard anyone describe that because in our country, and in fact, around the world, most people think about saving, 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 but we never actually articulate that there's actually a prime window to spend it as well. And so what happens, I think, is that a lot of people, they build this idea in their head of retiring, or at least our parents' generation. I'm going to retire and then I'm going to travel. I'm going to retire, then I'm going to do these hobbies. What I think people like us are doing more, our generation is like building the muscle now of starting to try some of these things. Like Tim Ferriss has talked about like, hey, if you think you want to buy a boat, why don't you just rent a boat for a day and see if you actually like it? Build the muscle of traveling, build the muscle of doing these things and realize that you have a window, a primary window to spend your money. I came home and I told my dad that. My dad's in his 70s and he was really surprised. I think as you get older, you know, you start to think about mortality and I see older people who email me a lot and they are so focused on their asset allocation and saving. And I, I look at their numbers a lot and some of them have done very well. Like they've saved, they have a pension maybe, whatever. And I tell them like, you've done a great job saving. You need to switch now to talking about spending. And that is a real mindset shift. I'm like, next time you email me, 
Don't email me about your Excel spreadsheet. Tell me what travel magazine you read or tell me what hobby you started with your two friends because that is more meaningful to you now than eking out an extra 1%. For the people that are wealthy, you know what I think popular was Millionaire Next Door. Second book to I Will Teach to Be Rich, which is the one you should be buying. That's right. <laughs> tell you tell <laughs> That's no, right. Tell them no. So who are the people that are wealthy that people would be surprised about? Oh man, there's so many. That's why I was curious. Oh yeah. my God, I love, so my beliefs about the wealthy have been shattered over time as I have come to know a lot of them. They look different than you think. They do different things. They spend money differently. And I think The Millionaire Next Door was a very good book, which I would encourage everyone to read. People kind of have this idea that the wealthy live like richy rich. They have all their food served to them with these big silver platters being taken off and stuff like that. But I also think the millionaire next door caused people to think that all millionaires are like down home, good old boys wearing old Lee jeans and they never <laughs> spend on anything. And that's also equally untrue. That's not true. I know a lot of millionaires who spend a ton of money on stuff they love. I have friends who have massive wine collections. I'm like, why? To me, I don't get it, right? I can't tell the difference in anyone's. I've been to so many wine classes. My wife and I take notes and then like I lose the notes the next day. I don't remember anything from the class. It's just not my thing. They told me wine is a social event. So when somebody comes over, I open up a nice bottle of wine. It's relational. I was like, oh shit, like that makes sense. It's not my thing, but I totally get it. I have other friends who travel like you wouldn't believe. They travel like crazy and they travel very well. And then I have other friends who like spend on their apartment, which is like extremely nice and like perfectly decorated. So I want to kind of share that I learned there's a common misconception that the wealthy are living like richy rich. That's not true. A lot of times, especially in places like San Francisco, you can't tell who, especially based on the clothes people wear there. I, I mean, like, they, yeah, like you really can't tell what's going on in that city with their sartorial choices. But also let's kind of be real. Like if you have $2 million or five or 10 or $20 million in net worth, it's unlikely that they're flying economy everywhere. You know, in our country, we love the idea of someone who's extremely successful, but chooses not to spend. We love that. We love it. Who's the number one person that comes to mind when you think of someone who's super rich, but very frugal? Who is it? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. And you know what? Everyone's like, oh, Warren Buffett lives in the same house, 1958. Warren Buffett has a private jet. I went to his house. It's nice. Yeah, it's fine. It's a really nice house. All right. So you want to ask yourself, why do we love that? And the answer is, you know, we have these phrases, I call them invisible scripts. And there are lots of invisible scripts in our culture. One of them is real estate is the best investment. For Indian people, it's education is the best thing you can do. I think that's a pretty good script, personally. There's good scripts. There's destructive scripts. There's lots of them. One of them is like, don't get too big for your britches. The idea that if you've earned X dollars, that it's bad that you would go to a really nice restaurant once, maybe for your anniversary, is like so bad in this culture that we actually revere people who are worth billions and live in an old house from 1958. Just think about that and ask yourself this. If you made X dollars, whatever you make, triple it. It could be you make now make 100K, 300K, 3 million. What would you do? Most people's answer is, I would never go to that hotel to eat or that restaurant or that, I would do this. And the real answer is you have no idea what you would do because as you earn more money, your tastes will change. It's natural. Now, not all of them. I still have a lot of frugal stuff that I do. Like it's crazy frugal, but taste change. That's normal. People say money changes people. Money should change people. What are you still frugal on? As I've made more money over the years and accumulated as I've gotten older, there's still some things like my living situation that I still live in sub places. Like 
pretty bad. Why is that? I'm trying to understand it. Where in the companies that, you know, AppSumo.com, Sumo.com, that's a plug. The companies I work at, it's a little weird. <laughs> at the companies, there's really not a limit to how much I can spend on like paying people salaries right. or software or advertising or whatever it is. Like a recent thing is I got a car for the company and I use it majority for the company, but I couldn't buy it for myself. I still have a 2004 Miata, which is a dope car for middle-aged guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that's something interesting where that's a blocker for me. Deep down, we know why we do this. It just needs a few questions to be asked. So my wife makes fun of me because... I run my entire business from a MacBook Air and it sounds like an airplane because like it's so loud, like the memory is low. I don't know what's going on. And it's just like overheats, but like it works. Like I don't mind, it works. And the other day I had to install something. So I went to the Apple thing on the top left corner and it shows me what year I bought it. Dude, it's seven years old. It's a seven-year-old MacBook Air. And she's like, why don't you just get another one? Like I could afford it. The real honest answer is when I was growing up, we would buy one computer for the whole family. That was it. We would never get another one until this thing literally did not turn on. They were expensive. And I think I still have a bit of that. I saw it in another case because my team was like, hey, you need to get a backup computer. We were doing these webinars and we would generate a lot of revenue. They're like, you need a backup. And I'm like, no, I'm good. Like my MacBook Air. They're like, dude, there's like 3,000 people on this webinar. Get another computer. And they finally convinced me as a business expense but on the personal side, I'm like, ah, it's good. So I think that's like a bit irrationally frugal because technically, like, if I could save five minutes a day, it would be worth it. But I'm just like, it's not important to me. So that's one example of where I save money. And I just don't really care. On the other hand, I would stay like I'm dialed in to how I travel, what hotel I stay in, where I shop. What is something that you were irrational or had a block on that you actually changed? Clothes and fitness. So you weren't spending a lot before and you didn't think it made sense? And then Correct. Just like everyone, I thought it was like shallow. I love the value in style and I love the value in artisans who like handcraft sweaters and like, where do they get the cashmere from? I really love it. I know it sounds crazy to people because it would have sounded crazy to me 10 years ago. But when we were on our honeymoon, we went on this long six-week honeymoon. And one of the things that we both did was we went to the actual factory of Brunello Cuccinelli. It's a clothing brand that's based in Solomeo. We walked around their factory and they took us and showed us the highly trained artisans who were making these clothes by hand. We loved it. My wife is in fashion. She's a stylist. She has her own business. And I love this stuff. And we got to go around and see how they did it. They have a school where they train teenagers to become artisans and pass it on to the next generation. What I did, I showed it on my Instagram. My readers don't really like clothes, dude, to tell you the truth. They think it's shallow <laughs> and stupid. And so I showed the videos on my Instagram account at Ramit to show them, like, these are very expensive clothes. It might not make sense for you financially, or you just don't care. But I want to show you that there's a reason that these things exist. And there's value in them paying a livable wage. There's value in paying for the best. How did you get over the block though? How'd you get over the block where you thought it was stupid? A couple of things. Number one, when I was like 22, right out of college, I asked my friend, Julie, to take me shopping because she was like stylish. And she did something that I still remember. She pulled all this stuff and she was really excited. She got me excited. And I think guys in general, we kind of look at clothes shopping as like, oh, just like we're not excited. We want to get it over with. And she was just like, oh my God, you're going to look awesome in this. Oh my God, this is so cool. So she was getting excited. So I was getting excited. And then the first thing I would do when I picked up like a pair of pants, what would I do? I look price. at the price tag. And she's like, don't look at the price. Try it on first. This was completely different than I'd ever shopped before, ever. She would be super honest. She would tell me like, that's not good. 
it's too tight or whatever. Once she got me excited about it, then I looked at the price. So instead of cost being the primary driver, it was value. How do I look? How do I feel? Over time, I got more financially comfortable. I started to realize like, I don't know how to do this and I wanna crack the code. Interestingly though, like with wine, I don't really know much about wine, but I just don't care. So there are certain things I think we're all naturally interested in. I'm not sitting here telling anyone you need to dress in whatever form. If you care, you know if you care. And if you don't care, like with wine, that's fine too. Yeah. If someone has blocks, so for me, it's like spending on myself, it's spending on my living environment. Sounds like one solution potentially is like, go try nicer places. Yeah, with a guide. If you have trouble spending on yourself, or if you've never been to a nice restaurant like I'd never been, I wish that I could have had someone take me and say like, okay, Ramit, you're going to walk out of here saying, I'm not full. That was stupid. I could have gone to Taco Bell. (laughs) That's what I would have said, because I love Taco Bell when I was in my 20s. What they would have shown me is there's a whole different lens to put on to view this experience. It's not about cost. It's not even about how full you are. It's a totally different lens that you've never even thought about. And that's what I think with money, if you're open enough to change your lenses, then you might experience things you never considered before. Same with the clothing one too. When have you felt jealousy with money? I think I was jealous of you that you had more money. Me? Yeah, it was in my mind that you were making more money than me. Okay. It was an interesting moment. I was like, oh, wow, what am I actually really jealous of? So what was it? I think it was that my business wasn't going the way I wanted it to. I don't actually want to do Ramit's business. Like talking to people about their credit cards and automatic investing and rich life. But it was interesting to notice the jealousy was pretty high for me. When have you felt jealousy related money or business? I think what you said about business really strikes me because money-wise... I live in a way that I feel like I live exactly the way I want to live. Like, for example, someone offered to buy my company several years ago, and I was like, what would I do with more money? I live the same way I live. Although I like a nice couple things, I don't even have a car. Like, I don't do all these crazy things you would think. I'm not in the meatpacking, you know, buying bottle service four times a week. I have like a very organized, nice life, and I like to travel a bit and buy clothes. That's pretty simple. I don't need much more for that. What I do love is waking up, having control over my business, getting to practice the craft of what I do. I think that when it comes to jealousy, it kind of reminds me of college. When you start off, like when you're in high school and all your friends are taking the same classes, I remember being jealous because my friends always had higher grades than I did. And we were all doing the same thing. But when I got to college and I started going on my own major, we couldn't compare apples to apples anymore because we were all doing our own thing. So I think in business, like There's very few people doing the kind of programs I do about business, advanced personal finance, and finding a dream job and all that stuff. But I I will say that I do more toxic internet, Twitter scrolling and stuff when something isn't going well in my life. Like Mm. I'm reading like gossip columns and shit like that. But when things are going well, not at all. You could look at my Chrome history and see how often I'm in certain subreddits based on like how well are certain things going. So my story about myself, you tell a story a lot about how you're cheap. And I'm like, stop saying that, dude. Not cheap. I say practical. Yeah, none of that. (laughs) We all tell ourselves stories, right? And some of them are positive and some of them are destructive. Mine earlier on was like, I'm a skinny Indian guy. That was like, ha ha ha, funny, but actually very self-destructive because it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Another story I told myself, which I thought was good was, I'm calm. Nothing phases me. I'm cool under pressure. That's a good story, right? People would say that. They said that about my dad. They say it about me. Super chill. He's very level baseline. We started having trouble in my business. I found myself not being able to sleep. I would wake up and I would be out of breath. That's like a pretty terrifying feeling, right? 
And I used to fall asleep in an instant. Imagine you go to sleep knowing that you're going to stare at the ceiling for like an hour, which I've never had happen to me. And then knowing that you're going to wake up feeling like you're out of breath, like you're suffocating. Not a good way to go to sleep, right? So this happens for a week. So finally, I went to see a sleep doctor. Sleep doctor goes, puts this stuff in my throat, and they look inside my nose and stuff. And they're like, okay, physiologically, you're fine. She goes, are you under any stress? I laughed. I'm like, am I under any stress? Yeah, tons. Our company was not doing well. And we had had to make some layoffs. This is something that has never happened to me. I never connected that I could be stressed out to affect my physical health. I've always been able to fall asleep in an instant. So I literally could not connect the obvious that this doctor connected in like literally 10 seconds. We had to make a list of layoffs and it was one of the toughest things I've ever had to do. The day we made that list, I fell asleep and I woke up for the first time in probably months. What that told me, first of all, I just truly did not understand the connection between stress and health. And I've never seen it as stark as that. Actually kind of similar to your friend who's in debt. If you make a plan a lot of other things fall into place. We did it and it was tough. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in business, maybe the hardest. We try to treat everyone with a lot of dignity and take care of severance and everything we can, but the way that it affects their health, my health, everyone's health, is just like something I had never encountered before. There are a lot of stories we tell ourselves. And sometimes we just haven't faced a scenario where we can test those stories. When you face it, who knows how you'll react? That's what I learned about myself. Sometimes I tell people, I'm like, dude, just go be an employee. <laughs> you know what's funny you say that? How many of my friends do I know right now that are between late 30s to late 40s? A lot of these friends started off wanting to build a $100 million business. And for whatever reason, maybe there's something in the air right now. I don't know what it is. So many of them are like, you know what? I'd rather have a business with a small team of core, awesome employees, high profit, as opposed to like raising a bunch of money or running a $100 million business with its own set of headaches. Would you rather run a $100 million business with a 5% profit margin or a $20 million business with a 50%? A lot of people will say, oh, $20 million because it's 50% profit margin. You make more money. It's like double the profit. But actually, most people want the $100 million business. Why? Because you get the helicopter. You get to speak on certain conference stages. But some of my friends are starting to say, you know what? I don't need the helicopter because I understand the costs of what it takes to get there. Tons of sacrifice, maybe health issues. If you're talking about X or Y, you've won no matter what. At a certain point, you've won the game of personal finance. That's when you have to change the entire game you're playing because you're not trying to save the next $1. Yeah. People have the probably wrong idea of like, I need all this money to do all these things. It's like, well, what's the lifestyle that's your dream? Totally. And then what's the amount of money that you actually need to be able to have that dream very comfortably? Yeah, that's really common. I hear that a lot. Imagine you've spent your whole life, like I did, telling myself that story about like, I'm cool under pressure. Well, imagine your whole life has been like, I need to say yes to everything so I can become comfortable and not have to worry about money, blah, blah, blah. You've never flexed the muscle of saying, no, that's enough. Never. When was the last time most people in America said, I have enough. Never. <laughs> they don't know what enough is. If you ask them how much is enough, it's whatever they have, add 50 to 100%. I always think about that when I see there's like free muffins somewhere or free pizza. <laughs> there's an event or there's yeah. an activity and there's something free and everyone can take a bit and people just go fucking ballistic and they take as much as possible. That's a, I never thought of that example. Oh, they fucking go wild. Like if you throw out t-shirts at sporting events or if you have stuff, people are like, oh, I can take this stuff. 
it's very irregular that people are like, okay, I can get one thing or I have just yeah. half of it. Imagine you saw someone walk past like this free pizza and they're like, no, thank you. Everyone would be like, what's wrong with you? But to me, free has a cost. You know, there's this great quote Dan Kennedy says, he says, why pay less when you can pay more? <laughs> the fuck? Think about that. It's so counterintuitive to how we are brought up. Now, he's not talking about for everyone, but he's saying there's a cost to paying too little. There's a guy who emailed me two days ago. He said, Ramit, I've been reading your site for like eight years. I've never done anything with it, but thank you for sending these emails. They keep me motivated. And I stumbled across your ultimate guide to personal finance. And I finally decided to get rid of my debt, blah, blah, blah. Thank you for putting this free material out that is helping so many people. Now, I'm happy that my free stuff could help him. But in his case, he would have been better off spending $10 on my book 10 years ago. It would have made him hundreds of thousands of dollars. He chose the money lens of free. In reality, he should have paid more time, attention, money to get better results. There's a cost to free. I think you are ahead of your time in a lot of things that I think I've given you credit for it or I will now, which is like, you got an assistant before anyone even really talked about having an assistant. You got two apartments in separate cities, which people thought was crazy. You moved to New York and you got a sick apartment, which I've stayed at. I think I violated my own rule. There's a rule for how much you should spend on rent or mortgage. It's like 28%, generally after tax. And in New York, a lot of people go above that because New York's expensive. So they'll do like 40 to 50%. I think my number was definitely above 28%. When I moved into that place, it was easily the nicest apartment that any of my friends had. So I have a beautiful view and it's a pretty big apartment for one person. It's a very nice apartment in New York by New York standards. What's so amazing is that as time went on, you've heard about like keeping up with the Joneses, my friends got nicer apartments. It's really interesting because in New York, your apartment says everything about you. Where do you choose to live? What neighborhood? Do you have a doorman or not? And, you know, some of my friends had these super baller apartments. And I'm like literally watching the Joneses around me. I never felt like I wanted a bigger one right now because I was a single guy living in New York. I had more than enough space for one person. Da, 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 da. What's interesting is that while it was expensive for when I got it, I've also stayed in the same place for 10 years. So I have incurred no fees in moving. I've incurred no fees in basically new furniture. You know, the stuff I got when I moved in is like, there's been no transaction costs on any of that at all. And so now, of course, my net worth has grown over the last 10 years. Think about the differences in the consistency of staying in one place. Yes, it may have been a little more expensive at the beginning, but I also don't trade apartments every two to three years. And now that we're married, here's a crazy thing. My wife moved in. We were like, should we get a new place? To tell you the truth, it's a little small for two people. We were like, you know what? Let's take a look around. So we start looking around at two bedrooms. Every place feels like it's a bit of a step down. It's like not as cool of a neighborhood or just like the service isn't as good, whatever. So then my wife is like, she's playing on street easy and she increases the budget like a little. I find her at like 1 a.m. She's awake. She's like just turning that budget up. Suddenly I find myself with her in like a 2,400 square foot Soho loft. I walk in, I'm like, I was made to live here. This is so nice, dude. And then just like too many bathrooms, it's so beautiful. And we walked out of there and we're like, of course it was stunning. If you turn the budget up in any city, you can find an amazing place. We had a conversation and this was like a really good conversation for us as a couple about what to do with our money. And I said, look, we can move in there if we want to, but I think we should be very conservative. I'm like very conservative on taxes. I'm very conservative where I live, hence not moving for 10 years. I'm like, the worst thing in America, the biggest shame in America is having to downgrade for financial reasons. 
But if people choose to downgrade, like a lot of people retire, they move to Florida, great. But you never want to have to make a bad decision because of money. Never. I never have to work with anyone I don't like because my money is good money. I never have to work with a company I don't like because my money is good money. And I never want to have to downgrade because of finances. So I said, I would encourage us to stay. Every day we stay in this apartment, we're saving money. We can set a goal of where we want to live. And like when we set a goal, let's go baller. Let's pick an amazing place to move. Let's not compromise, but let's like save up. Her business at the time was getting off the ground. And now that her business is doing super well, she looks back and she's like, I'm so glad we are staying here. So we did have to compromise on things like, I do video calls and sometimes she's on the couch behind me. And I have to be like, babe, like, can you move so that no one can see you sitting on the couch? But like, I don't know, I find it like kind of romantic. Like the two of us, we're in this apartment. It's a nice apartment. So I'm not complaining about our life at all. But I kind of like that it forces us to live in a smaller place, keep things simple and have something to work towards. The thing with that and the assistant and New York and double apartments and starting digital courses really before it was popular, I guess what gave you the conviction or clarity to see those things and do those things? Because you were spending 30 to 50% of your salary on your apartment and doing these things ahead of a lot of other people. I knew that with my assistant, when I started out, friends would say to me like, oh, you have an assistant, like what a show off. I just was like, dude, it's not meant to show off. Trust me, like any glamour or glitz that I have wears off after like two weeks when you have to write a paycheck. (laughs) That's good. That's good. It's just my money dial is convenience. We can talk about this concept of money dials where you love to spend your money. And I've always known that I love convenience. Like my whole life is built around convenience. I have true joy when I talk about how I've engineered my life for convenience. Most people don't like convenience. Most people's money dial is something else like travel. Do you have any absurd conveniences Oh, people would be shocked at? Oh, dude, 100%. I can tell one that you've done with me personally. We were hanging out at your place in New York, and I was like, oh, this is a great book. You should read it. And you opened up the Amazon page, and instead of buying it, you literally took the URL and then texted it to your assistant for her to go buy. Mm. And I was like, dude, it's literally the button right there. And you're like, yeah, it's just not convenient. Okay, so what's going on there? Why did I do that? It's probably because it's more convenient for them to do it or not worth their time. Yeah, it's also that I don't want to have to decide, should I do this one thing one way or another way? I want it to always be the same for things that are unimportant to me. So for example, eating, I eat the same thing every day. And I know this is like really controversial in America. People are like, I get bored, blah, blah, blah. I like eating the same thing every day. And when I order something off of Amazon, I just send it to my assistant, Jill, and she knows to order it and if it needs to be on a business credit card or not. I don't want to have to make that micro decision, even for like a $10 book. But for things like, hey, like, let's hang out today or like, let's take a trip together or whatever, like that, dude, I'm like present. I want to talk all day. I want to do that. But I don't want to even have a micro decision. So everyone's going to think I'm deranged, but can I set some context of why I do this? I don't have a printer because I don't want to mess up the visuals of my apartment. Sometimes I need something printed out for whatever reason. My assistant will have it printed at like a Kinko's and then have it sent up to me. And the total bill is like 53 cents. And there's like someone like who brings it up. It just arrives at my door. And I guess that's another thing. Like at a certain point, you probably shouldn't be paying attention to every last penny. I do it way too much. Yeah. Brian Tracy said the more successful he became, the less he was able to afford doing certain things. And what he meant by that was he couldn't mow his lawn anymore because he would rather spend the time with his daughter. And so 
Maybe it is free. I don't know how much it costs to have it brought up to me from Kinko's or whatever. Or maybe it is $5 delivery fee. It doesn't really matter. That's not material. And all of us have that thing. If you go to the grocery store, when my mom used to take us, she would buy everything raw and chop it up. Now a lot of people, if they go buy vegetables, they buy it pre-chopped, right? What's the difference? $3, $5. If you can afford that and it's valuable to you to not have to chop it up, then make that decision once and just always buy the chopped up vegetables. If on the other hand, you love chopping, some people do, or like I like ironing, so I'll try to iron my stuff myself a lot of times. You could do that just because you want to. You don't have to make everything efficient. So that's one thing I do that's kind of weird. I think what's interesting to some extent is it's the external status, especially like with the New York kind of culture. Well, dude, it's so true. I mean, status is another money dial. Almost 0% of people admit to status as a money dial, as something they actually spend on. But of course, everyone spends on status. Look at the phone in your pocket. That's status, but you won't admit to it. Your rational brain will say, well, it has a faster this and the camera has this many megapixels. It's bullshit. It's status. And the sooner you admit that you do certain things for status, then the more you can own it and say, you know what? I like it. Do you think that a sweater that's like a hundred times more expensive than another one is a hundred times gonna last longer? No, it's ridiculous. The great irony though, some people will notice it. Like I want people to notice it. Actually at the highest levels, you actually don't want people to notice it. The clothes I wear have no logos. That's my worst nightmare to wear some expensive piece of clothing with a huge logo on it. That's my nightmare. That's why you don't see me posting pictures on some huge boat or something like that. That's not my rich life. My rich life is to decide together with my wife and to do things that are subtle and understated, but that I appreciate. So the artisanship, I know what went into making that sweater. Nobody else needs to know. I know Cass knows, maybe one or two other people who know with a knowing nod know, but nobody else needs to know. That's it. It looks the same to most people, maybe a little different fit. All right. So Uber Black or Uber X? Uber X all day. Who would take Uber Black? Do you? No, I've never taken it. You know, it's funny though. I was in LA. I'm trying to not rent a car at all. I had to go to San Diego. So I took Uber from LA to San Diego and all my LA friends were like, what? And I was like, dude, it's like literally the same price. It was 137 bucks. Round trip or each way? One way. But it would have cost like 100 bucks minimum to rent a car. And then parking. And yeah. So I'm like, it's not that crazy. Again, my money dial, convenience. So then as I was ordering it, my friend was like, dude, find out. Are you taking UberX or Black? I'm like, who takes Black? He's like, find out how much it is. Okay, so UberX was 137. Guess how much Uber Black was? 500? $730, dude. So like to me, I don't understand the value at this point in my life, but I suppose if I was doing like a business deal with some big shot CEO, I guess that could have made sense. I'd probably rent the car to save some money and then I'd try to get a coupon on it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm going to Vietnam with my girlfriend next month. Nice. Which is awesome. I like taking business class if I can use points or something like that. The business class ticket to Vietnam, $9,000. It's pretty pricey, dude. Do you always fly business class or is there an amount where you're not actually like... Yeah, there's an amount where I would be like, I need to really think about it. 9,000 bucks is a ton of money, dude. Yeah. So like, there's a couple things that I would think. I mean, at first I would be trying to pay with points. I tried. No. It was the equivalent of like eight to 9,000. You're more advanced than I am at like travel hacking. Like I've been told by people that I'm the worst. I'm pretty bad at it. My brother, who's really good at it, right? I'll tell him, hey, I'm going to fly from like New York to uh, LA and it's going to cost me like 200,000 points. And he's like, are you insane? And I'm like, dude, try to find me a better flight. And then he comes back to me and he's like, okay, I can get it for you for like 40K, but you have to fly at like this time or that. I'm like, dude, I don't have that kind of flexibility. Like I don't want to wake up at 3 a.m. or whatever. Like yeah. I have limited time. I'm studying Hebrew and I was watching this show called Shtisel. The thing that stuck with me is that there's a young guy, Akiva, and he's got his father 
the guy is just getting older. For some reason, like that show in one moment a few weeks ago really hit me with just like, fuck, it's going to happen. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be there. But I don't think in this day and age we really recognize that. Yeah. We're like at 65 or at 80 or whatever. That's going to happen. As we get older, we start to have that awareness. And so are you saying, you know, maybe you should think more about where you spend your time and your money? Yeah, I think it's gotten better over the years where I've felt more comfortable uh, doing finances or trying new things. It is like, how do you baby step into it? I tried to iteratively take more control of my calendar. I think the last time I did a whole revamp of my calendar was about a year ago. I realized like just something was out of balance. I was having all these like one-off meetings and stuff. And I would try to take a one-on-one off and I would try to take another one off. And it would take me like two or three weeks to get rid of one one-on-one because I had to systematize it and process and all this stuff. I was like, if I keep doing this, it's going to take me a year to change my calendar. So instead I talked to my assistant, I'm like, wipe it all just wipe the whole thing. And I was like, now let's talk about what I want to spend my time on. I was like, growth matters. Writing my book matters. I needed to finish my book. And a couple of other things matter. Take the rest off. I went to them and I'm like, we're not going to have these meetings anymore. So figure out what you want to do. I'll support you. Sometimes I think iteration matters. But in that case, I just couldn't iterate it out of its local maxima or local minima. And I just had to blow the whole thing up. Completely. It totally changed my life the first Monday after we started it. I had a massive open block of time, massive, like three hours. And I was working on like deep thinking and hard work and all that stuff. Oh my God, it felt so amazing. Sometimes you gotta just like pull the plug and start fresh. Yeah. The reason I brought that up was about your money. So like you've been iterating on like spending a little bit more on yourself and stuff. What if you just blew the whole thing up? And you're like, where do I want to spend my money? Oh, that's What would Ramit do for an intellectual exercise? Self-care you talked about. Yeah, I was talking to you a few days ago and I mentioned I added up the things that are personal cost, total self-care. So it's massage once a week, Hebrew teacher, boxing teacher, lady to come do cleaning once a week. And the cost at the end of the month was around $1,600, which to me seems like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. I told you and you were like, oh, that's just the beginning. (laughs) And you said there's other levels to this. What did you mean by that? I love meeting people who show me that I thought I was at the top and then they make me realize that I'm not shit, that there's another level. So it reminds me like in Vegas, you know, you ever go to those Vegas pool parties, there's always another pool, always, right? And like, it's not that I always need to go to the next pool. You don't know that it existed. Yeah, I want to know because then I can decide if I want to go there, if it's valuable enough for me. But I want to know that it exists. And I trust myself enough to know, even if I know there's another pool or another restaurant or another business or whatever, that I'm not going to jump like a moth to a flame. I trust myself. I'll make the right call over time. So... I met someone the other day. I was recording my audiobook and a friend of mine was at the office and we had lunch and she's like, oh, what time do you wake up? And I said, oh, I'm up early these days. She's like, how early? I said six. And I'm really proud of it. Like my wife and I are both on this. And she just laughed. She's like, oh, that's early. And I was like, wait, how early are you up? She's like, 4.30. And I was like, what? And I was like, tell me everything. What time do you go to sleep? How do you do it? So, but like in terms of self-care, things that you can spend more money on. Trainer. So for me, the best, one of the best investments I ever made was getting a trainer. I told you that I used to have that self-talk of skinny Indian dude, and I needed help. Just having workouts on YouTube was not enough. All of us are like smart. If you're listening to this podcast, you're smart. Yeah. And good looking. (laughs) (laughs) Going through life and realizing just because you're smart doesn't mean you necessarily know how to do certain things or that you can follow through. That's good. That's humbling. And then once you accept that and you're like, I need help, 
And it could be that you're overweight. It could be that you can't get your money together. It could be that you want to start a business, but you've been stuck on an idea for two years. Two years is too long. It's too long to be stuck for two years. Get help. First of all, try the free stuff. Go on YouTube. If that doesn't work, most people give up. Oh, it doesn't work for me. I can't do it. Oh, I'm not made for that. No. The next thing is you keep trying. Spend $10. Spend $100. Don't tell me you can't spend $100. Look at the phone you're using right now. You can spend $100. Once people start to spend, then they realize, wow, there's a lot of value. Value, by the way, does not have to be ROI. My trainer, I could theoretically get the same workouts. They're all public. So why don't I just do it myself? The real question to ask is, what are the people you admire spending on? And like, if you actually ask them, and people will tell you the truth a lot of times, and then you ask them like, why? You might discover they're looking at their spending through a totally different lens than you. People are like, why don't you just do it off YouTube? I'm like, you don't get it. I'm not trying to get cheap results. I'm trying to get the best results. Why don't you get that sweater from H&M? I'm not optimizing for cost. But there are things where I am optimizing for cost. So for that, I'm like, yeah, just give me the cheapest. Table salt, hand soap, don't give a shit. So give me the cheapest as a commodity to me. I thought it was an interesting way of thinking about this day and age is that now non quote unquote wealthy people can have their own staff. Yeah. We live better now, even in like middle class than kings lived 50 years ago. Well, I thought that was interesting because I think we'll do this in our professional life. Like, all right, I have my accountant and I have a developer and there's a designer and a marketer and support. But in our personal lives, I think I just started thinking about that this week where how do I build my staff to support my personal life? Totally. The biggest one that I find is um, grocery shopping. Hmm. I have students of mine who have used my zero to launch program, whatever, and they make four, five, six hundred thousand dollars. A lot of them within like 18 months. So that's a massive socioeconomic change, right? You're now earning more than you ever thought possible. And that really brings its own different challenges. For example, as I said, that quote about as I got more successful, I couldn't afford it. They're earning 600,000, but they're still shopping at the grocery store. It's one thing if they like shopping at the grocery store, but none of them do. I said, why don't you just get somebody to do your grocery shopping? And what do you think their answer is? It's always the same. It's not worth it. I could just do it myself. Yeah, you could. You could do a lot of things yourself, but is that the best use of your time? I think what's crazy about that, when your book first came out, there was no Uber. There was no Instacart. There was none of these services like Favor or Postmates that would literally do these services. And for prices that are frankly really low. Yeah, like I have stuff that is handled. The Kinko's thing is just a simple example. But whenever I travel to a hotel for more than three days, I have this travel protocol and I have food like waiting at the hotel for me that's from Whole Foods. And it's like healthy food. And there's like a great idea. It's so that I can stay on track. The principle behind that came from a podcast I once listened to, but it was a Navy SEAL who said, when most people do pushups, they get tired. When I do pushups, I get stronger you reframe the entire experience. And one of my mentors, Jay Abraham, has always taught me, turn a weakness into a strength. So when most people travel, they think that they're going to get off their diet. It's hard to die. It's hard to die. And I actually said, you know what? I'm going to get better as I travel. I'm actually going to get stronger as I travel. I'm still working on fully optimizing that, but I now know that at least I can cut down on the crazy amount of eating by having like a solid breakfast, I'll eat lunch out with my team if I'm with my team. And then dinner like is solid. Every time I do it, I post it on Instagram. And people are like, oh my God, how much does it cost? What service did you use? And I'm like, that's not the point. You're looking for a magical answer. Get creative. Go on Craigslist. Post it on Fiverr. It doesn't matter. 
you can use money to solve a problem, which is how I want money to be seen if you optimize your stuff using my book versus it's a source of stress and anxiety and things you should do. No, get the basic mechanism in place, automate your investment and savings. And then this is the hard part for people. Go to the next chapter of life and say like, what's my rich life? For me, it's convenience. All this stuff sounds fucking crazy to people. You don't even travel that much or you don't want Whole Foods waiting for you, fine. But maybe you wanna take a trip with your parents or your spouse to a place you've never gone. Maybe you wanna do a local cooking class. Maybe you wanna do whatever. I got a friend, his money dial is relationships. Pretty rare one. He has a boat and a lake house and like four times a year, he hosts people at his lake house. He invites him, he pays for everything just so that people can meet each other. Cost him a lot of money. That's his money dial. So he turns it all the way to 10. Do you think it's that people just don't pay attention to what theirs is? Because I'm like, oh, what's mine? But I guess I just don't really even think of it. Nobody knows what their money dial is. So there are a few. You can Google money dials. And the common ones are travel. Travel, convenience, fitness and health is a really big one. And there's a few more. Food is up there. Yeah, food's a big one. Is there a convenience that you haven't felt comfortable affording yet? Private. And actually, I talked to my friend about it and we ran through the numbers and we're like, if you have to run through the numbers, you're not at that level yet. Do the private jet. Yeah. Like even to Austin, I was like, hmm, how much would it be? It's like 200 bucks to fly Delta and it's like $20,000 one way. It just makes no sense, right? And so there is a number where you're like, nah, no thanks. Not yet. Yeah. yeah. Again, chopping up your own cauliflower. It might be irrelevant depending on if you make 80K, spending an extra four bucks on the chopped vegetables is irrelevant. There is a point where you made more that day from the interest on your investments than cost of a private flight. And you can actually calculate that. You know, you're making 8% a year, da 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 divide it out. There are things that I spend now that would have seen outrageous, but that's because I systematically invested, I worked on business, all the stuff that I teach on my site. And so the key there is that as your net worth grows, you change the things that you think about. I used to think buying chopped vegetables was crazy. Now I'm like, I don't even want to think about it. The key thing there is people are having a lot of $3 conversations when they really should be having $30,000 conversations. This guy came to me the other day on Instagram. I have this course for advanced personal finance. And it says very clearly who it's for. If you have this much in net worth, multiple six figures, you've done all the basics, you've maxed out all your accounts, I've got advanced stuff to teach you. And he's like, hey, I'm not sure. What do you think? Should I join this program? I was like, what are your numbers? And he tells me his net worth. He tells me everything. I'm like, why are we even talking about this? Like this course costs 500 or a thousand bucks. He has a big net worth, multiple six figures. I'm like, if you could learn one thing, this course is worth it for the rest of your life times a thousand. And I said, ironically in the course, the second half of it is the psychology of the wealthy. I said, you're gonna learn how to expand the way you think and stop having $3 conversations and instead have 30,000 or in his case, 300,000 and $3 million conversations. So for the people listening, if the questions you've been having are like, should I buy this jar of pickles? Or maybe should I buy this car, EX or DX Honda? If that's the right level, awesome. You should have those conversations and make the right decision. But what I find with people, especially people listening to this podcast who are probably doing pretty well and paying attention to the things that are going on with their money, ask yourself if you need to be thinking a little bit bigger with the questions that you're asking. I know you read a lot. And I was just thinking like, do you think wealthy people are all readers? I feel like I don't meet a lot of poor people who read a lot. In terms of making good money or having that, I just and I guess I was curious what things have you read recently that you've enjoyed? I read a lot. So I read books, blogs, Hacker News, Reddit. I also take it with a grain of salt because like a lot of people on these sites are like lunatics. But 
Charlie Munger said that. He said, you know, the wealthy always read a ton. And he has some fantastic quotes. I think that's probably true. I also grew up, my mom would take us to the library on Saturdays because it was air conditioned. It's free too. Yeah, it's free. Bingo. If you go in there, you see a lot of Indian people. That's like no accident, right? Education is like really, really important culturally. And that's something that if we have kids, which we're talking about, then that's like something that would be really important to me. The funny thing is that's not expensive. That's not expensive at all. It's literally free, but it's super meaningful in the way that I was raised and that it taught us to love reading. It taught us to love reading and it also taught us to be able to focus, which I think is a skill that focus and have discipline is a skill that is increasingly rare. Well, I think that's something I always commend you on of how consistent you are. Oh, right? thank like you, you've dude. been blogging since 2004 and not just blogging, consistently blogging. Thank you. And I think you've left your lane a little bit. And I think you kind of were like, okay, I'm gonna come back and find the lane that I like or the games I can win. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I don't like to talk about Roth IRAs anymore. I'm like, read my book. Like it's all the technical stuff is laid out there. But I do think money is so fascinating. It was fascinating to me day one when I started writing about it. Now it's fascinating on another level, like the stuff we've been talking about, money dials. What does money mean to you? What is your rich life? Like dream bigger. Yeah, well, one thing I want to just add it. So what if I want to give this book to my girlfriend? And I'm not saying she's bad with money. I know a little bit of her finances. I have my stuff pretty dialed in. And so mm. I'm guessing with your wife or anyone who's got a partner out there, how do they get their person engaged or not engaged? Like if I give her the book and she's like, hey, here's a book, I Don't think do help that. you. Yeah, chapter nine, I talk about money and relationships. There's so many things. There's what do you do if your parents haven't saved enough? What do you do if your friends are at different levels than you? And what do you do, including a prenup? What do you do with all this stuff? And I would say that this is a great book to read together because you can't just say like, read this. You have to do it together, right? It's gotta be both of you putting skin in the game. And that's when you can have a conversation. So like once a week, Cass and I, we have like a touch base and we sit down, we have an agenda of things to talk about. And I'm like, what's on the agenda? Like right or now, just different things, same every week? Or we're starting to become more consistent, but we've only been doing it for a few weeks. So we started off just like picking questions to ask each other. One of them would be like, what do you appreciate about something that I've done in the last week? What could I improve? Interestingly, I've heard a number of really smart people who do this. Tim does it and some other people do it. Dan Martell does it. There's like a thing that happens uh, with smart people. I don't know. I love learning from people, smart people who have applied their intelligence to some other area of life. So we sit down and we do it. If I were in your situation, I would say, hey, I want us to like get on the same page with money so that we can decide together what our rich life looks like. And she might be like, why? What, what are you talking about? You're like, well, like, for example, if you could go anywhere this year, where would it be? And start with the dream. Don't start with the Roth IRA. That's not the place to start. It's like, where would you go? Oh, Vietnam? Awesome. Like, what would you want to see there? How long would we go? Where would we fly? What type of seats? And it's like, not about the money, but it's about the dream. What does it mean to you? And then I would say like, awesome. Like for me, when I think about those things, I want to plan for it. I actually want us to dream bigger and I want us to dream together. So if you're on the same page and, and you're okay with it, I'd love for us to go through it Start with the financial side. Let's get that all dialed in so that every year we know that we can take the trip we want. We don't have to worry about, can we afford this or that? No, we can do both. That is like a great way to open that conversation. Cool. Because it's selling the dream and then it's like, hey, here's some things we can do to help get there. Yeah. I was thinking I'd tell her Roth IRA and she's like, who's Roth? Who are you with? <laughs> Something that I've been just noodling on for a while now is how we can behave in one area of our lives and it's not consistent with other areas. So like in our company lives, there's an accountant and there's budgets and there's performance and there's KPIs and there's organization. And I've just really, I don't need to be as formal, but some structure into the relationship. Totally. Because like, I do it in my fitness life. 
And so one thing that you do is a personal CFO. Yeah. And so I think that's something to share for people who are just starting out or anyone where you actually hire someone, even though you're an expert in personal finance, to help you pay attention to money. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I have a personal CFO that once you get to a certain net worth, it can make sense to engage with either a financial advisor who can just be a second set of eyes and they should be a fee-only financial advisor. In other words, you pay them on an hourly basis. Not percentage? Not percentage. I still believe you should invest yourself. Do the stuff in my book. You will save hundreds of thousands of dollars over the long term. And depending on your net worth, if you're talking to them, you will potentially save millions if you invest on your own versus paying one to 2% in fees. What I want to do since my money dial is convenience, I wanted to really get everything dialed in even more. Now, it's not really fair to expect my assistant to initiate all these transfers and make sure that money's going in the right places. Like, that's not really fair. So I found a firm that would manage it for me and that were very knowledgeable in financial stuff. And usually they work with companies, but they also work with CEOs, et cetera, who want to bring their personal lives in there. You can imagine, say, like a CEO who's maybe older, he or she has a family and like lots of stuff going on. They just want this stuff taken care of. Now, I happen to be a little bit more hands-on since I'm pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. So I went to them and I said, okay, here's what I want. I said, get all my accounts. All the stuff is here. I want a report once a month. We're going to talk for 30 minutes. Here's what I want the report to look like. So I have executive summary at the top. What changed in my net worth? What were the key areas that went up or down? Why? And I want you to build out this categorization model, kind of like what Mint or You Need a Budget would do. And I said, look, my spending is very stable for almost all areas of my life. My rent is the same. My eating out is basically the same. It's very little, et cetera. There are two areas that are variable, travel and clothes. And here's the numbers that I want to assign basically as a budget. But if it's above this number, make it red. If it's below, make it green. And overall, if I overspend in one area for a month, I'm okay, because as you get a little bit more advanced, it's like with anything, when you first start out learning certain things, you're like very rigid about the rules. You need to, you have to. I was tracking every penny. Once you get to a certain level of whatever expertise, then you can kind of be looser about it. You can be a bit more intuitive, right? And I know now that, you know, if I overspend here, I'm going to be conscious and I'm going to cut back down the next month. And even if it's not, it's fine. You know, we'll move it around from here to there. This was a different playbook than my wife was used to. So when we met and I was like, yeah, it's fine. Like, it'll come from here, there. Don't worry. These guys will figure it out. She was like, what are you talking about? Like, she'd been tracking her spending carefully. So we had to kind of align and get on the same page and go through a lot of emotional discussions about money and its meaning for us. The CFO, every month we get on the call, they walk through it. I might have some questions. How come this hasn't been attributed here? Or, hey, didn't like paid for this sub savings thing. So why don't we just close that account? They will also coordinate with my accountant to make sure that if we need to say max out my HSA, that that's taken care of. So they coordinate directly with each other and that it just sort of happens and they give me a report. That's what they do. And it's been like very helpful for me. It allows me to have a bird's eye view of my finances. And again, my big rule of thumb that I actually care about is we should be saving 20 to 30% of our money Every year, if we're doing that and that money is being properly allocated and invested, overall, we're doing really well. That really informs questions like, should we pay for that business class ticket or not? So we don't have to make those micro decisions. We have a really big decision, 20 to 30%. How do we save that? How do we hit that number? And the rest of it just falls out of that. That is a wrap. I hope you liked the episode. If you did, go check out Ramit on Twitter at Ramit or at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's play Monopoly together. 
Before you go, send me an email what you thought of the show, podcast at okdork.com. Outro plug. Also, go remember to check out sendfox.com if you are a content creator and want to send emails. Finally, you know who I'm going to give thanks to. It's Jason at podcasttech.com. As always, for making these podcasts sound so juicy, big special shout out to Dean Young. He's been coming back helping out with all of the promotional stuff around Dork and podcasts and everything in my life. I love you, Dean. Good luck on getting married. Thank you for all your help. What's your favorite board game? <laughs>